Then let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Tomorrow, <coughs> tomorrow our one-month retreat will end. And so this is the last Dhamma talk of this retreat. And in this Dhamma talk, I want to talk about two aspects or two approaches with which we can continue our practice in day-to-day life or approaches that we really should or must integrate into our day-to-day life. It's about sila and metta, two approaches, one goal. So the, the way to complete happiness, as it was shown by the Buddha, consists in the purification of our heart and mind. And one verse in the Dhammapada states this so clearly and very short. <clears throat> it's like a summary of the Buddha's teaching. It says, to do good, to avoid evil, to purify one's heart and mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So, this sounds very simple, but it's a bit more difficult to really put it into practice. And there are also the questions like, What do I understand under to do good? And what means to avoid evil? And what can I do to purify the heart and mind? And what actually means purification? So the Buddha has taught many different approaches to put into practice this uh, simple uh, statement of what is to do. So, some of these aspects or approaches are to lead a virtuous life, to practice virtue, or to develop the Brahma Viharas, as you know, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, or to practice generosity, or to cultivate, to develop the so-called paramis, the perfections. Metta is one of the paramis too, but uh, qualities like patience, truthfulness, 
renunciation, effort, and so on. Or one approach is to practice samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, or then to practice vipassana meditation, insight meditation, or to reflect on the Buddha's attributes, and so on. And so among these many different approaches of how we can do good, of how we can avoid evil, of how we can purify our heart and mind, I want to talk about two approaches. It's about sila and metta. So to show how they complement each other, how they overlap, and how they actually achieve the same thing or the same goal on a very practical level. So you are familiar with sila and metta. Sila means virtue, virtuous behavior of body and speech. And metta means loving-kindness, benevolence, friendliness, or unconditional love. And usually these two approaches are dealt with separately. So either um, you hear about sila, virtue, or you hear about metta, loving-kindness. But these two approaches are basically not different. They have the same goal, namely benevolence and respect for other people and other living beings. So as we know, sila means virtue, virtuous behavior, and it refers to our actions of body and speech. And we can say that sila takes place in the field of interpersonal contacts, or maybe better, in the field of the contacts between us and other living beings because we also deal or communicate with animals, for example. The Buddha defined virtuous behavior or wholesome habits in this way. Wholesome bodily actions, wholesome verbal actions, purification of livelihood. These are called wholesome habits, or these are called virtue. And in regard to the Noble Eightfold Path, we have three factors which deal with virtue, as I've shown in one of the talks, like the Sila group of the Eightfold Path, the group of virtue. It's right action, right speech, and right livelihood. So virtuous behavior is described as behavior of body and speech that does not hurt anybody and that is not harmful, neither for us 
nor for others. Actually, virtuous behavior is based on common sense. Like, just as I do not want to be hurt, I should not hurt others. Or, as I do not want to be offended, I should not offend others. Or, in the same way, as I do not want to be told a lie, I should not tell lies to others. Or, in the same way, I don't want to be sexually abused, I should not sexually abuse others. So, in short, we should treat others in the same way we want to be treated by others. Namely, with respect, with honesty, with patience, not harming and forbearing. You know, many people are under the strong influence of the defilements, namely desire, greed, and aversion, hatred. And as a result, many of their actions are informed by this unwholesome or um, hurting uh, forces. And the result is devastating. Other people and animals are injured and killed. They are lied to. They are robbed and raped or killed. So lots of lot a lot of suffering is caused through such um, harmful behavior. And so to show what are regarded wholesome actions, many religions, many spiritual traditions have set up certain guidelines which show to wholesome, um, non-harming, not hurting behavior. And the Buddha proposed five ethical guidelines for virtuous behavior. We are probably all familiar with these five basic uh, precepts. You know, the precepts that we chant in the morning, the nine precepts. So it's the first five, with the third one not being abstention from all sexual conduct, but abstention from sexual misconduct. And so, if people follow these ethical guidelines, then they can manifest a virtuous behavior, which means they do not hurt or harm others. They do not inflict suffering on others, on others and also on themselves. So sila, virtue, 
is the base of our practice, but it's also the result of our practice. At the beginning of the practice, we base our practice on these ethical guidelines because we realize that they are helpful on our way to liberation, because we realize that they are helpful in purifying our heart and mind. And then later on in the practice, we will no longer need these precepts as an outer frame, because through direct and personal understanding gained through the practice, we have arrived at the place where we naturally refrain from harmful or unwholesome actions. Lama Anagarika Govinda was a German Buddhist and he put put it this way. For a Buddhist, virtue is the practical expression of her belief, sorry, of her level of understanding. Virtue is not the cause of our attitude, but the result. So as we know, every physical action and every word, our speech, comes from the mind. It originates in the mind. So each act of, let's say, punching somebody into the face or speaking angry words, so all these acts are preceded by a mental impulse. And again, in the Dhammapada, there are two verses, the first one and the second one, which uh, state this very clearly. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is the chief. They are all mind-made. If, with an impure mind, a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Then the second verse. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind-made. If, with a pure mind, a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him like his never-departing shadow. (coughs) So to produce an action like punching somebody into the face, first there is an unwholesome thought or an emotion like anger or jealousy. And as we know, such unwholesome thoughts or emotions are called kilesas in Pali. I have talked about them quite extensively. So the purification of the heart and mind entails to first weaken these kilesas, defilements, and then to completely uproot these defilements. 
And as we have seen, when these defilements reach a certain strength, then they manifest as physical actions or as speech. And as we have seen, <clears throat> these visible manifestation of a defilement is called a transgressive defilement. And this is the coarsest form of the defilements. As long as a defilement is only manifested in the mind, as a thought, as an emotion, then it is called obsessive defilement. And so this kind of defilement can be invisible from the outside. But sometimes it is noticeable from the outside when, for example, a person is boiling with anger, as we say in German. So then we, you know, the, the red face and uh, sweat uh, on the face. These are visible manifestations of the anger that burns, boils inside. So this obsessive defilement is a bit more subtle than the transgressive defilement, the most, the coarsest form. And as we have seen, there is yet another level of defilement, much more subtle, the latent defilements, the anusaya kilesas. And as you know, these latent defilements, they dwell in the continuum of the mind. They are there in a latent state or in a dormant state, like a dormant volcano. But as soon as one, as a certain object, hits one of the sense doors, then this latent defilement wakes up and comes into manifestation, becomes active, either as an obsessive defilement or as a transgressive uh, defilement. So the point is, if one can follow the ethical guidelines, the precepts, then one can prevent the defilements from manifesting on the coarsest level, namely on the level of physical and verbal actions. For example, I'm just about to retaliate with angry words to the assault of a neighbor, but then I might remember, ah, in the morning I recited the precepts and to use harsh, abusive speech is not really virtuous behavior. And so then I notice that and then I don't lash out these angry words. So then I prevent the transgressive defilement from happening. It's still there as an obsessive defilement like your anger or aversion towards the neighbor but at least you do not let it uh, become an action of body or speech. 
And so, if we are successful to refrain from such a transgressive act, this is already an important step on the way to liberation. It might not seem like really being much or uh, very very helpful or important thing in the practice, but actually it is. So how important this sila aspect is in the context of practice? This is manifested in the fact that sila is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. As I've already said, so right action, right speech, and right livelihood. The Buddha saw very clearly that complete liberation without virtue is not possible. And this is why he integrated this aspect, this important aspect, into the Eightfold Path as a part of the whole practice. And this makes it also clear that the practice does not only consist of intensive meditation retreats or spending years alone in the cave of the Himalayas. There is no other way than really integrating all aspects of life into our practice. So also our day-to-day life must become part of our practice. And so with this, we will change to the second approach, another approach with which we can purify our heart and mind. It's the metta approach. Mitta, as you know very well, is friendliness, kindness, unconditional love. And this benevolent inner disposition encompasses all living beings, of course, including ourselves. And what I said in regard to sila, in regard to virtue, This is also true for metta, loving-kindness. First of all, metta also takes part in the field of interpersonal relationships, or maybe also better, in the field of relationships or contacts between us and other living beings. Because animals, for example, are also living beings. They are also included. And then, uh, second, the behavior based on metta manifests as actions of body and speech that do not hurt, that do not harm, that do not inflict suffering, neither for us nor for others. Also here, 
base of meta actions or meta behavior is also based on common sense. A heart, a mind that is free from selfish desire, that is free from aversion, hatred, and so on. Such a heart, mind is naturally kind and friendly. Such a heart, a mind, has no intention to hurt or harm other living beings. The deepest wish of such a heart, such a metta heart, is the wish for our fellow human beings to be happy and well, or the wish that all living beings be happy and well. With the practice of metta meditation, we develop and strengthen this benevolent attitude of the heart and the mind. And for this, we take specific phrases or wishes to cultivate this inner disposition to be friendly, kind, loving, or caring. And traditionally, we begin with this practice. We begin this practice with ourselves, having a benevolent wish for ourselves, such as, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, or may I live at ease and in peace. And we start with ourselves to really tap into this deep-seated wish. So we have to directly experience it in ourselves so that we understand that basically everybody and all living beings have the same wish. Once the Buddha was asked, who is most dear to us? And the Buddha replied, Investigating the whole world with my mind, I did not find anyone dearer than oneself. Since oneself is dearer than others, one who loves oneself should never harm others. When we deeply reflect, we come to see, like the Buddha, that other people, that other living beings, have the same deep-seated wish. And so we see that other people, other living beings, are not different from us in this regard. Or in other words, we are the same on the level of the heart. We all have this wish for happiness, good health, success, and peace. And so then, based on this understanding, we extend this wish to other living beings. And the transition to another person, to another being, can be made with these words, 
just as I wish to be happy and well, may my teacher be happy and well. Or, in the same way as I want to live at ease and in peace, may my neighbor live at ease and in peace. So we try to connect to other people, to other living beings, on this heart level. And this is not so difficult with people we respect and love, or with animals that we love. However, it becomes a bit more difficult when we do it for a person we do not like, or for a person we have uh, a grudge. But with the practice of metta meditation, these barriers gradually fall away. And yes, the stress is on gradually. So it won't happen from one day to another that all these barriers and boundaries and blocks uh, fall away. But finally, we come to this place where the heart, the mind, just rates benevolence all around to all living beings, equally boundless and in abundance. And the Buddha described this uh, in the following way, and we know this from the chant the four boundless states. So what we chant, metasa, hakate, nachitasa, and so on. In English it is, I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. So this quality of metta, loving-kindness, can and should manifest on three levels. The heart-mind level, then on the level of the body, and on the level of speech. So with the practice of metta meditation, as we have been doing it here during this retreat, we cultivate loving-kindness on the level of the heart, of the mind. And this is very important because, as we have seen, all actions of body and speech originate in the mind. And it's interesting to know that 
in the preamble of the UNESCO Constitution, it says, Since war begins in the minds of men, it is in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be built. Beautiful words, but not so much action in regard to implement this has been done. Simply producing more weapons to destroy other weapons and people. So yes, it's very important that a benevolent attitude pervades the heart, the mind. But this benevolent attitude must also manifest in the body as physical actions. It must also manifest in speech, in our words. And as we have seen, we call this metta manifested in physical actions and metta manifested in speech. As we know, if there were metta, loving-kindness, friendliness in people's hearts, then there would be much more harmony in our uh, communities. And we know from the discourses and the Buddhist scriptures that there was not always harmony in the community of the monks or the nuns. We are told they were quarreling <laughs> And so the Buddha uh, at one stage then mentioned uh, several things which contribute to harmony in communities. And three of these things are metta. So as the Buddha said, bodily acts of loving kindness towards companions in the holy life, verbal acts of loving-kindness towards companions in the holy life, and mental acts of loving-kindness towards the companions in the holy life. So really, metta on all the three levels, kind thoughts, kind words, and kind physical actions. And so now we want to look at the relationship of these two approaches, the relationship between sila and metta. So with these explanations on sila and metta, it has hopefully become clear that these two approaches manifest in a respectful and non-harming behavior. The two approaches are different, but the practical goal is the same. So the sila approach, virtue approach, we want that others do not hurt us, so we should not hurt others. 
and the meta approach, loving kindness approach. We want to be happy and we understand that others want to be happy too. And this means that if we wish that they are happy too, then we will not hurt them. So in the context of the sila approach, it is about not harming or hurting other living beings in any way. And we know that the precepts are formulated uh, in this way. For example, I undertake the training precept to abstain from killing living beings. Or I undertake the training precept to, to refrain from taking what is not given. So the way these precepts are stated, explicitly it is stated what we should not do, or to refrain from killing, for example. But implicitly it means that I train myself to protect living beings, that I train myself to protect all forms of life, or that I protect living beings from injuries or death, or that I train myself to protect the possessions which belong to others. And so, this implicit aspect of sila, this is nothing other than an expression of metta, namely the expression of friendliness, of benevolence, the expression of my wish that other people, other living beings, may be healthy and well, my wish that they do not suffer, or that they do not lose their happiness, or their wealth, their possessions. Then the metta approach is based on this hard quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, benevolence. It's this heartfelt wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings. And when this wish is deeply anchored in ourselves, then we will naturally refrain from all physical and verbal actions which may hurt or harm others in any way. So here, with the meta approach, we have the explicit wish that all beings be happy and well. So, from the bottom of our heart, we simply wish them that they may be happy, healthy and well. And so, implicitly, this means that we do not engage in actions or speech which uh, cause suffering or harm or loss or injury. So we can see that sila includes metta and 
we see that metta includes sila. On the one hand, if we base our actions of body and speech on the ethical guidelines, on the precepts, then at the same time we also practice metta. The practice of virtue is also the practice of loving-kindness. Then on the other hand, if we base our actions of body and speech on metta, then our actions will be virtuous. So the practice of metta is also the practice of virtue, of sila. In my own practice, in my early years of practice, I found that I got quite irritated when I heard the word sila, or the English translation of it, or the German translation of it, because it was often translated as moral behavior, so talking of morality. And this then caused associations with words like moral crusader. And I definitely didn't want to have to do with any religion or any spiritual tradition which raises what we call in German the moral index finger, like saying, you don't do this. <laughs> so I found this sila aspect, morality, not really inviting, to say the least. I found it quite mm, repulsing. It was only much later that I got to know the other side of Sila. And then I really started to appreciate it and see its importance. This is from a book called Life is Spiritual Practice by uh, Sean Smith. And it says, ethical integrity, morality, or virtue, they are all liberating qualities of the heart-mind that harmonize our inner and outer lives. They bring peace to ourselves and freedom from fear to those with whom we share our world. Yes, it's so true. This sila, virtue, really harmonizes our inner and outer world. So, if you are not really attracted to the practice of sila, virtue, or if this seems to be restricting, then you can more then you can lay more stress on the practice of metta develop metta and live it 
in all aspects of your life. Really, manifest it with your physical actions, with your uh, words. And so in this way, you also cover the sila aspect. You cover virtue. Because if you really base your actions of body and speech on loving-kindness, on metta, then naturally your actions of body and speech will become virtuous. They will be um, not harming. If you have more problems with the metta or the metta practice, then you can put more focus on sila, on the practice of virtue. With your virtuous conduct, virtuous actions of body and speech, you show respect to other living beings. And so with this, you also cover the metta aspect. This means that your actions and speech will be benevolent and not harming, not inflicting suffering. So in this way, these two approaches, these two practices can really uh, be practiced in day-to-day life. They really should or must be practiced. Virtuous behavior, being kind, (coughs) friendly, and benevolent. And if you remember uh, doing this in day-to-day life, then we cover already quite a bit of ground for our practice of liberation. Then we cover already uh, much ground on the purification of our heart and mind. As I said, curbing down on the defilements, the kilesas, especially the transgressive uh, defilements. To end this talk, a short quote, a sentence from Bhante Bodhidhamma. He is an English monk who has ordained with Mahasi Sayadaw at that time and has a little center in England. So he has said, love in the, in the sense of meta-love, of course. So, love is wisdom as it manifests in relationships. Love is wisdom as it manifests in relationships. Let's sit quietly for a few moments.
Thank you for your attentive listening.